Kia ora, I'm Sharon Brett Kelly, and today on The Detail, Pope Francis wants it, so do Mark Zuckerberg, Gareth Morgan, and Bishop Desmond Tutu. Basic income, a topic that is very close to my heart. Universal basic income. UBI, a universal basic income. Unconditional basic income. What will a universal basic income look like in New Zealand in the future? It's a revolution, basically, of the tax and social security system, and we're bringing in the UBI components of that. That's right, the catchily named Universal Basic Income, also known as the Citizen's Income or Basic Living Stipend, or, as some call it, free money. It's a payment, like the pension, to every individual, including millionaires and billionaires. No questions asked, no means test, no requirement to work. And it's a hot topic around the world right now, including in New Zealand. That's one of the ideas that, that's on the table in terms of how we go forward in the future from here. Um, we're obviously going to be in a situation where a large number of people are going to be relying on some support, income support from the state for an extended period. The universal basic income is nothing new, but as the queues for food and benefits grow around the world, the debate has resurfaced. Here's Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg. Every generation expands its definition of equality. Today, we have a level of wealth inequality that hurts everyone. We should explore ideas like universal basic income to make sure that everyone has a cushion to try new ideas. And here's why Bishop Desmond Tutu wants it. We stand at a historic crossroads. One road leads up to the higher ground of social equity and inclusion, human dignity, full economic participation, broad-based prosperity and growth. The other leads downwards to growing poverty and economic inequity, social conflict, increased joblessness and pervasive insecurity. The high road involves time-honored values of solidarity, compassion, and care. The low road is characterized by selfishness and greed. It threatens the stability of our families and even our entire social fabric. Others hate it. Steve Forbes, chairman of Forbes Media, for one. The idea of an income for everybody is going to make sure that everyone's income, average income, is lower because it's going to reduce investment, It's going to reduce the kind of things that make for a higher standard of living. So in the name of helping us, he will hurt us. But several countries are starting to take it seriously. Spain is rolling out the minimum vital income to the poorest. Italy already had a version of it for the most vulnerable, even before COVID-19. And groups have been pushing for it in Germany and France. Finland trialled the UBI for two years with 2,000 randomly chosen unemployed Finns I spoke to Helsinki University researcher Laura Takiainen, who's interviewed 81 of those recipients to find out if it helped them get work. This experiment helped them to to gain employment. It really helped them to enter labour market and, for example, to do part-time and temporary jobs or start their small businesses. And in particular, it was positively framed by people working in creative fields, such as artists and journalists. But then again, there were people who didn't benefit from this experience in terms of employment. 
and uh, in most of the narratives, um, long-term illnesses and limited work ability were at the centre of these experiences. So they were not sort of ready to enter the labour market during the time of the experiment. For some people, this experience did not provide anything. <laughs> In other words, UBI made no difference to some people's lives. It helped some find jobs, others do community or unpaid work, and it gave some of them a feeling of greater financial security. So let's look at New Zealand. UBI was raised during the last election campaign by Gareth Morgan and the Opportunities Party top, and is back again pushing for it. We want everyone between the ages of 18 and 23 years of age to receive $200 per week, no questions asked, no bureaucrats to talk to, no hoops to jump through whatsoever. Why? Remember we have the highest rates of suicide in the developed world amongst young people. This is a, an important, pivotal, transitional period in people's lives. It's very stressful and we want to support people with that when they're trying to work out what to do with their lives. None of the parties in Parliament have picked it up so far, but as the Finance Minister Grant Robertson says, it's on the table. Max Rashbrook writes about economic inequality and is the 2020 J.D. Stout Fellow at Victoria University. He says UBI is not the answer, but not because he thinks we'll end up with a workless society. There's questions about whether you should deliver support unconditionally. You know, should you pay people to surf off PIHA all day? Um, I don't necessarily have a problem with that, although some would. Why don't you have a problem with that, Max? Why don't you have a Um, problem with someone collecting, say, you know, 22,000 a year, which would be the equivalent of what the superannuation is at the moment, and going out surfing? I guess I don't have a problem with it because I actually think it's largely a theoretical concern rather than a practical one. Like the main sort of popular objection to the UBI, that it would encourage laziness. But ironically, that's actually the one objection to the UBI that has no grounds because, you know, we've had sort of small-scale pilots of UBIs for decades, actually. And the evidence is really clear that people use them well. You know, where you have a UBI, you don't suddenly see everyone abandoning work. It just encourages people to go into education. So the cost, the cost is the big thing standing in its way? Yeah, and unfortunately when you start doing the numbers, it's the point where sort of the the good intentions of the UBI just fall to bits on the the hard rocks of practicality. Um, Because if you wanted to pay it at the level of New Zealand Super, that's about $22,000 a year. And I think that's the level of support that the welfare system should deliver to anyone who needs it because that's just above the poverty line for an individual. So that's the point where you can lead a life of some kind of minimal dignity, you know, as long as you own your own home, basically. But to pay it at that rate in New Zealand, to pay it at $22,000 a year to everyone in the country would cost about $90 billion a year. And that's about the ballpark of how much money the government currently spends on everything it does. So you'd have to suddenly, you'd have to double government spending overnight just to pay for the UBI. So it's obviously completely unaffordable. As a result, what people tend to do instead is say, well, we could pay it at the rate of the unemployment benefit, which is about $13,000 a year. But the problem then is that that still costs 
over $30 billion a year, even after savings um, from the existing welfare system. That's still a colossal amount of money. I think it's absolutely politically impossible to raise that much in tax. And even if you did, it would be a terrible idea to spend it on UBI. Firstly, because there's so many other things we need to spend that money on that are much more important, like building public housing, like fixing our water infrastructure, like you know repairing the mental health system, like supporting schools and hospitals better. Mm. And even, even if you ignored all those spending needs, there's still another colossal problem, which is that if you pay the UBI at the rate of the unemployment benefit, you wouldn't necessarily increase the income of a single person on the benefit who doesn't have any other source of income, who, who isn't doing any paid work. And so you would be spending over $30 billion along the way giving $13,000 a year to millionaires without necessarily improving the incomes of the most vulnerable people in New Zealand. And that is just an extraordinarily bad way to spend money. And it would just be paid to everybody on top of what they already earn. That's right. And that's probably one of the great strengths of the UBI is that it does make taking on paid work much easier uh, because you don't lose the UBI as you move into paid work in the way that you lose your entitlement to conventional benefits, they're clawed back or abated is the technical term, as you earn more income. So that's, that's no argument that if you could implement a UBI, that would be a major advantage of it. But you get that advantage at the expense of something that is actually much more important, which is being able to deliver more generous support to the people who need it the most. It's really interesting who supports it. Pope Francis, in an Easter letter to leaders of social movements, wrote, quote, This may be the time to consider a universal basic wage which would acknowledge and dignify the noble, essential tasks you carry out. It would ensure and concretely achieve the ideal, at once so human and so Christian, of no worker without rights. In his message, the Pope acknowledged that the pandemic and subsequent economic shutdowns have hit, as he said, twice as hard for those without any legal guarantee of protection. Mark Zuckerberg supports it. It doesn't necessarily fall across the the political divide, the left versus the right. It it doesn't fall across traditional political divides entirely, and that's interesting. What a number of those figures have in common is that they're not principally concerned about improving the situation of the most vulnerable, which I think has to be the single greatest priority of any welfare system. A number of, you know, even libertarians support it, and, yes, people in Silicon Valley support it, because they put quite a high priority on the fact that it makes people more independent of government. You know, the government isn't getting into your business and asking you what you're going to do with this money. But if you think about the contrasting policy options, um, in Australia, for instance, you know, they've just doubled their core unemployment benefits, albeit temporarily. Now, we could do that in New Zealand permanently for maybe, you know, $2 billion a year, which would have a transformative effect on the life chances of the most vulnerable. 
and you could do that at less than one-tenth of the cost of the UBO. You deliver far more at a fraction of the cost. So I think the fact that it appeals across the political spectrum is, is almost tells you that, that there are a lot of people who don't have the right priorities around what should the welfare system be doing. So is that what you advocate, as a doubling of the, the benefit? I, I would advocate something much more like what's called a guaranteed minimum income, where you say, what level of income, what kind of life do we want to ensure to guarantee that anyone can have in New Zealand? What kind of income do people need to lead a life of some minimal, minimal dignity if they don't have any other means of support? And so I would, I would take a guaranteed minimum income at something like the rate of New Zealand super, so $22,000 a year, and make it not universal um, but unconditional in the sense that you don't have to jump through a whole lot of hoops to get it. You don't have to prove that you're looking for work and so on and so forth. You can get it if you're looking after elderly parents or looking after children or volunteering in your community. So it's generous, and you don't have to jump through so many hoops, but it is clawed back from you as you earn more income. And the reason that you do that is that you have to claw it back from people as they earn more income in order to keep it affordable. And by keeping it affordable, that's what allows you to make it really generous for the people who need it. So it's a much better trade-off in the UBI, which is giving a smaller amount of money to lots of people who don't need it, it's much better to give a larger amount to people who do need it. And do you think now is the right time to bring something like that in? Because, you know, we've got soaring unemployment figures. More and more people by the day seem to be losing their jobs and people are saying that it's not going to get better just because we're moving down through the levels, it's actually going to get worse. Yeah, I, I think a guaranteed minimum income is exactly what we should be looking at now. Because if you think about the enormous shock, you know, that, that coronavirus represents and the turmoil that people are going through and the huge numbers of people are going to be losing their job, what is the need for? Well, what are people crying out for? And I think what people are crying out for is security and the guarantee of being able to hold together a minimally decent life. But then, I mean, if it's way, way, way below the minimum wage, would it be enough? Because, you know, people are struggling as it is, aren't they? I mean, people on the minimum wage, especially in places like Auckland, where living costs are so high, they struggle to live will have decent lives on the minimum wage? I think that's true. Um, I think there's also there's a limit in the end to how much any welfare system can do. But I think if you look at people who are on New Zealand Super, you know, who are on $22,000 a year, it's absolutely not a picnic. But we have very low rates of poverty amongst the over-65s in New Zealand. That's a massive, massive political achievement. 
And that is because if you own your own home, mortgage-free, you can lead a, a minimally decent life on New Zealand super, particularly if you've got some you know, family and community supports around you. I'm not saying it's easy, but it is doable. And so I think the guaranteed minimum income certainly by itself would not solve all the problems. But if you had a guaranteed minimum income and would fix the housing market, which is the main living cost disaster that people are dealing with, and you had some top-ups so that, you know, if you lived in central Auckland and you still had higher rent costs, you could get help with that. I think if you put those things together, you would have a pretty good support system for people who really needed it. Even when this goes away, people have been talking about UBI in recent years because of fears that robots are taking over our jobs. Increasingly, we're living in an automated world where robots and machines do the work that humans once did. And robots have become a symbol in Switzerland of a campaign to ensure that people are no longer out of pocket, whether they work or not. Well, I just don't think that's true. And actually, you know, the most careful modelling suggests that in the next couple of decades, there is not going to be an overall significant job loss from automation because, you know, I mean, you have to remember that computers put lots of people out of work, but we have far more jobs than ever before because often, you know, technology creates as many jobs as it destroys. So the big challenge actually in the next two decades, at least, is not going to be mass unemployment. It's going to be mass redeployment, you know, People will lose their jobs through automation. There will be new jobs created. We need to help people get into those new jobs. And again, that, in a funny way, that's actually another place where the UBI falls down because if you lose your job, it doesn't actually provide you with very much support because it has to be set very low in order to be universal. And it doesn't fund the retraining and skills program that people will need. So actually what that points to is the need for more generous support when people are out of work, which is what a guaranteed minimum income gives you, and then much greater funding for what are technically called active labour market programs, which are basically really high-quality skills training. What do you think is really going to happen here, Max, do you see this crisis triggering an overhaul of our welfare system? Well, I think the crisis should trigger an overhaul. Whether or not it will <laughs> is another question. You know, this, this government has shown itself to be very cautious on welfare, I think because it feels that the New Zealand public is still extremely conservative on welfare and still has, frankly, very hostile attitudes towards beneficiaries. You know, the Welfare Expert Advisory Group made over 40 recommendations, most of which I thought were extremely sound. The government has partially implemented three of them. It will, I think, be a little bit emboldened because... When there are more people on welfare, and a lot of those people are from previously middle-income households, there will be a lot more people who understand just how bad and ungenerous and complex 
to navigate the current welfare system is. And I think that will be a platform for a little bit of reform, but unless the government really changes its sort of levels of courage, uh, my pick would be that at most we'll get a series of useful but still incremental changes. I mean, we might see you know, the streamlining of some benefit processes, some further increases in the generosity of benefits. We might see some changes to you know, maybe the permanent removal of some stand-down periods before you can get benefits, things like that. Um, but at the moment, there's been very little to indicate that the government is willing to be bold on these issues. Right. And how does that make you feel? <laughs> um, it's disappointing. It's, look, it, it's understandable because it's, it's hard for any government, even a, you know, a, a progressive one, to deal with the fact that there is just a very entrenched hostility against beneficiaries. And when you look at the surveys, a very large number of New Zealanders say that people are poor because they've made bad life decisions. Yeah, in reality, this isn't true. Most of the people are poor because they've experienced massive life shocks or they've had very traumatic childhoods and they've been failed by the education system um, and they just need a bit of support to get themselves back on their feet. But that view about individual um, responsibility is very entrenched. So I do, I do understand why the government is tentative. But I also think that you know, coronavirus does provide an opportunity to be a bit more decisive, and I would really like to see them seize that opportunity. So in your ideal world, would it be the guaranteed minimum income? Yeah, I, I think you put in place a, a core benefit that people know they can get if they don't have any other source of income. You know, it's the bedrock. It's, it's the statement by society that there is a basic standard of living that we don't want anyone to sink beneath. And for me, that is absolutely crucial. That's the most important statement that we could make about other people, I think, as a society. And last week's budget had no increase in welfare payments and no so-called helicopter money, that's the handout of cash to stimulate the economy. However, $412 million went to social services, including school lunches, food banks and job support. That's the detail for today. I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. The detail is brought to you by newsroom.co.nz and made possible by RNZ and NZ On Air. You can get the detail downloaded free to your mobile phone every weekday from any podcast platform. If you're using Apple, give us a rating so others can find us too. Thanks to Max Rashbrook and Helsinki University's Laura Takiainen. This episode was engineered by Jeremy Ansel and produced by Alexia Russell. Kaki te anō.